I received an email this past week from Polly's aunt that read, Dear family, for Dead Daddy's 87th birthday this year, we decided to give him a subscription to StoryWorth. Uh, once a week, they will email Granddad a question and then send us his answer so we can preserve his legacy for years to come. This first week's question is, what advice would you give your grand and great-grandchildren? <clears throat> Dead Daddy's answer is, number one, do your best. Two, integrity is everything. Three, find a job that interests you. Four, be respectful to everyone. Five, don't sign anything you don't understand. He was a contract lawyer. Uh, six, um, give your kids a great education. Seven, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Eight, beware of drugs and alcohol. Nine, the government can't run anything efficiently. And finally, ten, always be improving. It's a pretty good list. What do you want your legacy to be? Whether you're 87 or whether you're 8 or 7 this morning, we all need to slow down from time to time and consider the bigger picture. Moses put it well in Psalm chapter 90. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet they are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, O oh God, that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's wise to number your days and live like you're going to die pretty soon because in the grand scheme of eternity you are. The lives that you and I live here on this earth are but a blip on the radar screen of eternity. And so the million dollar question for us is, how do we make them count? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? This morning, we're going to learn a few lessons, four lessons about how to leave a legacy from the Old Testament patriarch Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, in Genesis chapters 47 through 49. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there with me now, if you don't have a Bible, as always, we would love to give you one. At first glance, Jacob seems like an unlikely candidate to be giving advice, especially on something as important as your legacy. You remember Jacob came out of the womb grabbing Esau's heel, and he's been supplanting and defrauding ever since. Esau's birthright, Isaac's blessing, Laban's livestock, Esau's hospitality, his own family's purity at Shechem, his family's unity when his older sons hated the younger Joseph, the family's joy once Joseph was gone. Basically, Jacob's legacy to date has been defined by deceit and disappointment. But here's some good news for Jacob and for you and me, if you're a sinner like him this morning. When it comes to your legacy, it's not how you start, but how you finish. And Jacob finished well. 130 questionable years. But he finished strong, his last 17 and he left a legacy, not only for his own sons, his 12 boys, and, and their descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel that will come from him. But the New Testament actually calls us, those of us who are in Christ this morning, who have been saved by grace through faith, we are the true offspring of Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. That means that 
His legacy is for us this morning as well. Even as we contemplate our own legacies this morning, we can also appreciate the one that has been left for us by our forerunners of the faith like Jacob. So before we dive into chapter 47, would you go with me one more time as we approach the throne of grace? Ask God to bless our time together. Father, would you open our hearts now, unstop our deaf ears, open blind eyes to feel, experience, to, to hear, and to see the truth of your word this morning the grace, the beauty, the gospel. We need to see Jesus in this Old Testament obscure passage of of blessing. Jesus, you told us that all of Scripture points to you. Help us to see you this morning. And help us to learn this morning how we might leave a legacy of faith in you. That's the kind of legacy we want to leave. We pray in your name. Amen. Number one, Jacob's first endowment, as I just prayed, is his legacy of faith. Legacy of faith. We pick the story back up in chapter 47, verse 28. Last week, we examined the blessing of reconciliation as Joseph brought his family down to Egypt to be with him and to rescue them from famine and to bless them with the very best of the land despite what they had done to him. And we concluded in verse 27 with the summary, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. That was God's very first commandment, you might remember, back in chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, right? Israel's finally on track now that they're down in Egypt. But we read on in verse 28, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. The days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. So Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. What's going on here? Two technical notes, one overarching point. First, why do you put your hand under someone's thigh? Because you swear sacred oaths by sacred things. Today we use the Bible in our courtrooms. Back in Bible times, they didn't have Bibles. And so they did have God's holy command to be fruitful and multiply. And so they would swear on the instrument of procreation testicles. This is, by the way, where we get our word testify from. True story. Second, you remember Joseph's dream back in chapter 37, that one day his entire family would bow down to him. And Jacob asked, will I, even I, bow down to you, your father? Well, check back verse 31 here. 
the dream fulfilled. Israel bowed to his own son, Joseph, even if it was his old age, even if it was his osteoporosis getting to him, forcing him to bow still counts. God's word still holds true. And here's the bigger point. Why is Jacob so insistent on being buried back in Canaan? It's because that was the land that God had promised to him and to his father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham. And Jacob's final will and testament here, he demands to be buried in Canaan as an act of faith that God will one day fulfill his promise to Jacob's descendants. Ancient burials were very important. And you remember, no one did them better than the Egyptians, right? We still admire their mummies, their tombs, the pyramids, even today. Joseph was vice pharaoh. I am sure he could have hooked his father Jacob up with a nice setup, maybe his own little mini pyramid, down in Egypt. But Jacob says, no, take me back to Canaan. It's an act of faith. So what about you this morning? Are you leaving a legacy of faith? If I asked the three people who know you best in the world, who if you died tomorrow would give the eulogy at your funeral, if I asked each of them to describe you in three words, would any of them say faithful? There are lots of great characteristics that might define a person's character, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, fruit of the Spirit, fun, funny, hardworking, devoted, the list goes on. But the single most important virtue that you want to epitomize your life more than any other is faithfulness. You want to be known as a person of faith. Why? Because 1 John 2.17 declares, This world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It is only by giving your life away to the will of God. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, then you'll truly find it, save it. That's the only way to make your life last eternally in this world where everything else is passing away, friends. 2 Peter 3 tells us how it's all going to end. It's all going up in flames. And 1 Corinthians 3 warns us that, the, that only one thing is going to survive that fire. It's not your love for your family. It's not all the accolades you, you, you acquired at work. It's not your 401k. It's not all the good deeds and positive vibes you tried to spread everywhere during your life. All of that is getting burnt to the ground and only your foundation will remain. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the one thing that remains. Is your foundation in him this morning? Have you built on Christ? All of the ground is sinking sand. Number two, you want to leave a legacy of an inheritance. <clears throat> We're not going to read all of chapter 48. We will hit the highlights. This is an ancient adoption ceremony. When Polly and I adopted our son Elijah, it was pretty anticlimactic, thanks to COVID. But we still, nevertheless, felt impressed by the weight 
of that moment. As far as phone calls go, this was definitely up there amongst the most significant phone calls in my life. The judge asked us, can you state your full legal names, please? The child's full legal name, all the formalities. But then he asked, do you promise to take this child as your own, to love him, to care for him, to provide for him, both during your life as well as after you're gone, your inheritance, just as you would your own biological child. That's what Israel does here for Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Born to Joseph in Egypt by a foreign wife, Israel is now going to adopt them as his own. Chapter 48, verse 1, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Verse 3, here's the most important part. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. There it is again. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give to you this land and to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession. Jacob is reiterating here his inheritance. What has been left behind to him and what he's now leaving behind to his descendants. It is a promise directly from God Almighty, El Shaddai, to Originally, his grandfather Abraham back in chapter 12, then to his father, reaffirmed to his father Isaac in chapter 26, now reaffirmed to uh, him, Jacob, back in chapter 28. You remember the story at, at Luz, a.k.a. Bethel, when Jacob had nothing but a rock for a pillow, but he had a dream from God, and God came to him and blessed Jacob. And what was the blessing? Do you remember? Blessing given to all three patriarchs, three things, three promises people, a place, and a pledge. A people, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. A place, a land flowing with milk and honey, and a pledge to bless him and make him a blessing to all nations. That's the threefold promise of God that Jacob reiterates in verses three and four here. But now watch what he does in verse five. Now Joseph, he says, to your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I even came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Three things to note there. First, Jacob acknowledges that the boys are Egyptian. They don't deserve to be full members of the family of faith. Nevertheless, second, Jacob declares, as Reuben and Simeon are, so shall your sons be to me. Reuben and Simeon, you remember, were first and second in the birth order, according to ancient custom. That entitled Reuben in particular to a double portion of Jacob's inheritance. But now, 1 Chronicles 5 tells us they've been replaced by Ephraim and Manasseh. And that's the third thing to note. Note the order in which Jacob names them. Manasseh is older Joseph's firstborn, but Jacob names Ephraim first. And in a second, he's going to bless Ephraim with the blessing of the firstborn. Ephraim will take Reuben's place. Look at verse 13. We're going to skip verses 6 through 12. It's the legal formalities of the adoption. Verse 13, Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in Joseph's left hand toward Israel's right hand. They're facing each other. 
and he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph. And he starts in verses 15 and 16 on this beautiful blessing, but Joseph cuts him off right in the middle of verse 17. It says, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Now, even at 147, I have to believe Jacob couldn't help but smile as he recalled the last time that he was involved in a deathbed blessing, you remember, when his own father, Isaac, had accidentally endowed the younger Jacob with the blessing of the firstborn that he had intended for the older Esau. But God had always intended that blessing for Jacob. Just like God blessed Isaac, Jacob's father, instead of his older brother Ishmael. Just like God blessed Abram, Isaac's father, and not Abram's older brothers, Nahor or Haran. Just like God blessed Shem above the older Japheth, and Abel above Cain, and Abel's replacement, Seth, above Cain. Why? Why? Do you know? Fun Bible trivia. Why does God consistently bless the younger above the older? Simple. To demonstrate that God's kingdom is an upside-down one, where the first shall be last and the last first where the humble get exalted and the proud get humbled. Where 1 Corinthians 1, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast. Because the only reason that you and I get picked is God's undeserved grace. Not because of any of the world's criteria for getting picked for the team, not because you were smarter, stronger, and more popular. This isn't grade school PE class. No, the Bible says you and I were foolish and weak and despised, and that's exactly why God picked us for the team, to prove that it's obviously not because of anything in us, our good works, our greatness, that we made the cut. It is all because of Jesus. That's the gospel. His wise election his strong salvation, his great sacrifice for us. And all of these Old Testament birth order blessing swaps, the younger in place of the older, they are all ultimately pointing us ahead to an even greater swap whereby God himself would allow his blessing, which rightfully belonged to our older brother Jesus, to instead pass to us the undeserving younger siblings because God laid our sins and their curse on Jesus instead. He gets our curse, we get his blessing. That's the gospel. That is the good news according to Genesis chapter 48. Last note. Point number two, inheritance. Verse 21. 
Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, some of your Bibles will have a footnote below the word mountain slope there, informing you that the Hebrew word that is getting translated here is Shechem. Jacob literally says to Joseph, Joseph, as your inheritance, I'm leaving you Shechem, which I took from the Amorites with my sword. Now, if you remember the story of Shechem, if you were here with us back when we studied chapter 34, this seems like a bit of revisionist history. You might remember when Prince Shechem raped Jacob's daughter, Dinah. Her two older brothers, Simeon and Levi, tricked the whole town into circumcising themselves so they could intermarry with the Israelites. But then while they were all incapacitated, the Shechemites, Simeon and Levi slaughtered the entire village. Remember that? That's how Shechem was taken. As you might recall, at the time, Jacob was none too pleased about it. He was actually more worried about his own reputation with these godless pagan peoples than he was with defending his own daughter's dignity. What's the point? Here's the point. Like Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob too has benefited from an undeserved inheritance that was won for him by someone else. And what is his response, his legacy? Jacob proudly claims it as his own, this undeserved inheritance, and then in turn, he pays it forward as a blessing to others. He gives it away to his son Joseph and his grandsons. Brothers and sisters, if you are an adopted heir, of God Almighty this morning by virtue of your faith in Jesus, do you know that you've received an inheritance, an undeserved eternal inheritance that was won for you that is beyond all comparison? Eternal life. All the riches of heaven are now legally yours because you're a child of the king. It's like we sang about. I am who you say I am. I'm a child of God. My question is, how are you responding to that inheritance? Are you responding like Jacob? Are you paying it forward as a blessing to others? Do you invite others into the spiritual family as well to come be joint heirs with Christ of all of heaven, all the riches of heaven? Listen, application for point number two here. You want to leave an inheritance? You can certainly take that literally, materially, I should say. Sure, leave your kids an earthly, a loved ones an earthly inheritance. Don't leave them debt and bills to pay. 1 Timothy 5 8 exhorts us to provide financially for our family. That's important. But friends, it is so much more important, eternally important, to leave your loved ones a spiritual inheritance, an eternal legacy. Listen, we all know someone. We all love someone 
this morning who is not yet written into the family will. Their name is not in the Lamb's book of life. Will you leave them a spiritual legacy? Number three, you want to leave a legacy of a suitable blessing. A suitable blessing. The Hebrew word in chapter 49, verse 28, is kabir kato. Suitable, fitting, appropriate blessing. Israel adopted and blessed Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in chapter 48. Now in chapter 49, he's going to bless his own biological sons, all 12 of them. We're going to go through all 12 of them super fast. Verse 28, at the end, let's see the summary before we even start. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable him. Kabir Kato, blessing, repeated three times there for emphasis. As we're going to see, not all of these blessings feel like such a blessing. For a few of the boys, dad's word, his words are going to sound more like a curse. But it's suitable to them. Jacob introduces his final benediction in verse 1. He says, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So this is a blessing, but it's also a prophetic word spoken over each of the boys about their varied fates, what lie in store, not only for them, but for their future tribes for millennia to come. So it's one part blessing, may this happen to you but it's also part prophecy. This shall happen. And so for the sake of time, we're going to fly through it. Verse 3, <clears throat> Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So far, so good. Unstable as water, uh-oh, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. You remember back to chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben had slept with his stepmom, Bilhah, and that one decision cost him his entire birthright. Let that be a warning to us this morning, friends. Don't let one bad decision become your legacy. Define your entire life. It can don't let it. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, two peas in a pod. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Once again, their legacy, Simeon and Levi's, is defined by that one rash decision when they went Old Testament on the entire village of Shechem. And for their senseless violence, God is going to divide and scatter them. The Levites, we will discover when we study the book of Joshua, unlike all the other tribes, the Levites do not receive a land inheritance in the land of Canaan when it's divvied up. And the Simeonites' territory was completely uh, within the boundaries of Judah's and eventually would be absorbed 
into Judah's territory. So they both lose their share in the promised land, their legacy, because of one rash decision. Be doubly warned this morning, friends. Finally, we get some good news, some good prophecy, some blessing in verse 8 with Judah. Judah, at this point in the reading of Dad's will, had to be a little nervous. Because if you remember, Judah also had plenty of big sins, skeletons in his closet. The whole idea to sell Joseph into slavery, whose idea was that? Judah's. Judah's the only one who gets a whole chapter, 38, devoted to his sin, married a Canaanite, and then impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But despite all that, Judah is about to get blessed. He's about to get royally blessed. Why? What's different about Judah than Reuben, Simeon, Levi? One word, what's different? Repentance. Judah changed. He changed course. Judah was headed, just like his older brothers, down the wrong path. But in chapter 43, we saw Judah change. He took responsibility. He, he owned up to his past mistakes, and he repented. We can be encouraged this morning by the example of redemption that we find in Judah and in his legacy. You don't have to be defined by your worst mistakes in your life. They don't have to define you and be your legacy if, if you will repent. Acknowledge your sin, turn from it, readjust course, and return to the Lord, and he will bless you. Verse 8, Judah your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Before they bow to Joseph, one day it will be to the tribe of Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. From Judah will come a praiseworthy warrior lion of a king, and the scepter shall not depart from Judah until when? Until tribute comes to him. Now, some of your Bibles may have another footnote for the word tribute, Shiloh. <clears throat> there were no vowels in ancient written Hebrew, and so one had to supply the vowels when speaking, vocalizing. And so you could read that word Shiloh one way as tribute, or by simply changing the vowels, revocalization, you could read it as an entirely different word, which translates, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until the one comes to whom it belongs. Isn't that cool? King David was the first king and the greatest king of the royal tribe of Judah. And God had promised David that he would have an heir on the throne forever. But there's one problem. 
Immediately after David's son, Solomon, dies, the kingdom would be split, torn in two. And 500 years after that, both the northern and southern kingdoms, tribes, would be taken away into captivity. No king on the throne after that ever again. Not the literal, physical throne of Israel. So what gives? Well, King David was not the promised Messiah to whom the scepter truly belonged. God's people would have to wait another thousand years after King David for the real lion of Judah to come and to him, to Jesus, shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Zechariah 9, the donkey's colt is a symbol of royalty. That's why Jesus rode it in on Palm Sunday. Isaiah 5, the vine symbolizes fruitfulness. See, a millennium after this, Israel will reject God as their king in the book of Judges, and they will complain so much that God will finally give them the king they demand, just like the other nations, but he's going to warn them that their kings will be selfish and will exploit the people. And that was true of pretty much every king, even the good ones, until Jesus, until the king who came not to be served by the people, but to serve by binding his donkey, his royalty, using it as an opportunity not to exploit, but for fruitfulness, to bless others by uniting us to him, the true vine, the living vine. And how did he do it? Verse 11, by washing his garments in wine on the cross, by getting bloody for us. You see the, the prophecy here, 2,000 years before Jesus. This is amazing. So much we have to skip over here. Let's keep moving. <clears throat> Verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Interestingly, the tribe of Zebulun never owned any land on the sea. Their territory was completely landlocked. But despite this, history tells us they managed to run a profitable maritime trading business. Scholars say this points to Zebulun's entrepreneurial spirit as a tribe. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Issachar was the blue-collar tribe of Israel. Additionally, Issachar was allotted most of the Jezreel Valley in the middle of the nation Israel along the main highway from Egypt to Babylon so that any country trying to control the trade routes in antiquity would seek to take control of that region. Subsequently, they would become more frequently enslaved than the other tribes. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. The most famous of all the Old Testament judges, you might remember, a guy named Samson. He was a Danite. But Dan is also a serpent, we hear. Sadly, it was the tribe 
of Dan that first introduced idolatry into the people of Israel in the period of the judges. Now, halfway through his benediction in verse 18, it's almost like Jacob is looking forward millennia into the future prophetically at the waywardness of the nation of Israel, his descendants. And Jacob, with continued longing for God's promised Messiah, remember Genesis 3, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, God had promised to send a serpent-crushing offspring of Eve to his people. But now, thousands of years later, in the time of Jacob, and even as Jacob looks forward, thousands of years from now, there's still this longing. Instead of sending the serpent crusher, now he's just pronouncing curses on Dan, who is a serpent. God, you just keep giving us serpents. We keep falling deeper and deeper into sin. And so Jacob exclaims in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O God. And his people would for another 2,000 years after this. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. A small tribe located in Gilead across the Jordan River, Gad was more vulnerable to encroaching forces. They were sandwiched between the Moabites on the south, the Ammonites on the east, the Arameans on the northeast. So as a consequence of their constant wars for survival, the Gadites became renowned as warriors. Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher's territory is still known today for their production of olive oil. The name Asher, you remember, means happy. Moses' blessing in Deuteronomy 33 said, Most blessed of sons shall be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers. He's the popular one. He's the fun, likable brother. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Notable is the absence of a northern border delineated for Naphtali in Scripture. This is reflected in Jacob's picture here of a doe unfettered to Rome where it pleased. So Naphtali was the wandering, free-spirited son. Which brings us to Joseph in verse 22. And predictably, as Jacob's favorite Son, he gets the longest, greatest blessing of them all, of all 12 of them. Because though he was attacked and harassed, verse 23, Joseph remained unmoved, verse 24. And not only that, verse 22, Joseph was a fruitful bough, that vine image again, whose branches spill out over the wall intended for it because he was upheld, verse 24 by the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So in verses 25 and 26, Jacob heaps blessing upon blessing on Joseph. But listen, all of this is really there, intended to point us ahead again to the coming Joseph, the better Joseph, the most beloved son of all who would be attacked and harassed but remain unmoved the coming vine of blessing for Israel who was so fruitful that his blessing spilled over the walls to to us Gentiles as well. Do, Do I need to keep going? Do you get the illustration here? Jesus is the better Joseph. 
finally, verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. The picture of Benjamin's aggressive character predicts military feats of the Benjamites during the settlement and early monarchy periods despite their small size as a tribe. The warriors of Benjamin were renowned for their skill as marksmen, archers, and for their bravery. So here's what I thought I would do uh, to help try and condense and, and pull all of this together for you. I decided to meme the 12 sons of Israel to try and give you a more relatable visual for who we're dealing with. You've got Reuben, the dignified, powerful son who will nevertheless forever be remembered by his inability to keep it in his pants. You've got Simeon and Levi, Anton, Sugar, no country for old men and no respect for human life. You've got Judah, like his descendant, King David, who made some big mistakes, but who nevertheless repented and was royally blessed for it. You've got Zebulun, Jeff Bezos, right? The, the entrepreneurial shipping tycoon. You've got Issachar, just your average blue-collar, slave-to-the-system working man. You've got Dan, Robert the Bruce from Braveheart, who, who leads the people astray, even though he, he was supposed to judge them. You've got Gad, the karate kid, undersized, gets picked on, then he learns to fight. You've got Asher, the likable chef, <laughs> happy-go-lucky, the life-of-the-party kind of brother. You've got Naphtali, the wild, creative, free-spirited type from into the wild. You've got Joseph, who is a typology of Jesus to come. And finally, you've got Benjamin, Legolas, the, the small but cunning archer. Now, here's the takeaway. Here's why I do all this for you. Can you imagine trying to parent all 12 of these boys? <laughs> Back in chapter 37, I criticized Jacob, maybe a little overly harshly, for not knowing his sons, for essentially being an absent, if not, you know, at best aloof father. I said he should have intervened between Joseph and his older brothers, but instead he put Joseph in charge of supervising all his older brothers, their work. But here Jacob proves, get this, at the end of his life, his legacy, Jacob proves that he has grown as a father. He knows his sons. He is able to bless each of them with a blessing suitable to them. What about you? Parents, this morning, do you know your kids? Do you know their strengths and weaknesses? Do you know the way God has uniquely fashioned each of them? Listen, if Polly and I try to parent Elijah the same way we parent Ellery, we're in big trouble. Because they are not the same kid. They are night and day. And we've just got two. We've just got two to worry about for now. Maybe you don't even have kids this morning. Listen, you are still called to be a blessing to others. If you're an offspring of Abraham, his blessing is your blessing, to be a blessing to others. Remember last week, you've been reconciled to be a reconciled reconciler. But we need to make sure that it, it is a suitable, fitting blessing with which we bless others. I would just tell you, 
If I have the privilege of being there with Polly's grandfather, who I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Dead Daddy, on his deathbed, I will say a prayer of blessing over him. But it's going to be a very different blessing, I hope and pray, than if I get the privilege of sitting with you when you're on your deathbed as your pastor. Because I hope that I will be able to praise God for the legacy of faith that you are leaving behind and for the hope of glory to which you are headed. But you may have noticed, as important as Dad Daddy's 10 words of wisdom that I opened with were, none of them were of ultimate importance, eternal importance. There is no legacy of faith in that family. So on his deathbed, the only suitable blessing for a man like that is one of warning. Repent. Repent while there is still time. I pray that Dead Daddy might be like one of those workers in Jesus' parable who was hired at 5 p.m. at the end of the workday but still got paid the same wages as those of us who labored every day of our lives for the Master because of God's grace and his undeserved mercy. May that be my grandfather-in-law's legacy. That's my prayer. Better late than never, come into the kingdom. Will you leave a legacy of suitable blessings for all those in your sphere of influence? Finally, number four, Will you leave a legacy of hope? Verses 29 through 33. Jacob delivers his final detailed instructions for exactly where his sons are to bury him. And then in verse 33 we hear, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. What a beautiful Beautiful closing. After 147 long years, Jacob is finally headed home. Not to Canaan. That's not home. There's nothing but bones in Canaan. No, Jacob is headed to his people. He's gathered to his people and his people, Isaac, Abraham, his fathers before him, they're with God. Friends, you can be one day too. Do you know that? Yours too can be a legacy of hope. Listen, if you've done it right at all in this life, if you've left a legacy at all, people will cry at your funeral. The question is, what kind of tears will they be? Will they be tears of heartbreak? Because all the evidence in your life, your legacy points to the fact that you never really knew, never belonged to Jesus, and therefore we know where you're headed. Or will they be tears of joy? 
eternal joy because we know that you knew your Savior, and therefore we know where you're headed. Is yours a legacy of hope? Let's pray.